This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agopymatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a 60-second audio question or a written question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. Before I introduce my next guest, as always, I want to thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker and, of course, for sending in your dating and relationship questions. We also will have a few spots left for our next group coaching intensive programs, December 1st, 2nd, 3rd, December 4, 5, 6, depending, of course, your time zone. Uh, this might be December 2nd, 3rd, 4th. I don't know. We've got a few Australians uh, joining us on that one. In any case, you can check out more information about those intensives by visiting the episode notes. This week's guest is Dr. Jess O'Reilly, or better known as Dr. Jess. Dr. Jess is a sex and relationship expert with a background in education. Her research and passion involves teacher training in sexual health, and she volunteers in schools and universities to help bring better sex and relationship education to students across Ontario. That's right. She's Canadian, and you know how much I love Canadians. Jess is also a television personality, author, podcast host, uh, the podcast Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, an international speaker who has facilitated hundreds of corporate workshops and retreats in 35 countries from Lebanon to Costa Rica. Welcome, Dr. Jess. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. I mean, in general, I'm always excited to have Canadians, as I mentioned before. <laughs> it's always uh, it's always nice to, to hear the different perspective from our northern neighbors. <laughs> Right. Do you see many differences in dating in between Canada and the States? I mean, I'm sure it's super regional. Like you probably can't compare New York to Arkansas, but I think people in Toronto tend to be more like New York. Like the problems seem to be the same. Whereas like, I think in Montreal, the problems seem to be like Philadelphia problems. Oh, interesting. What's, what's the New York Toronto problem? Sorry, I'm interviewing you. I'm just yeah. curious. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I'm sure not everyone when I just said that is probably asking the same point. So like in Philadelphia, uh, dating comes with a pack. I feel like in my experience, it hasn't been a lot of individualized dating. It tends to be like, okay, here's my group of friends and whatever the, the, the alpha of the male group of friends, that's what we're doing. And in New, in New York city, it tends to be quite individualized because let's face it. Most people living in Philly, I would venture to guess that 85% of them grew up in the suburbs of Philly. Like it's the city. But in New York City, 85% of the people that are there are not from the New York City metro area. They've come there. So they've learned to be on their own and kind of walk their own path. And I feel like the same happens in Toronto and Montreal. Anytime I've set up people there or, you know, I've traveled there many times because, you know, my developers, I've had developers in both cities. It's my nature to observe the single scene wherever I go. And uh, yeah, I just see a lot of a pack mentality in Philadelphia, whereas in New York, it's very lone wolf. Do you feel the same? Am I? 
Yeah, I mean, it probably has to do with, as you said, the fact that people are immigrating to the city and also that big cities are a little bit more individualistic. And uh, that's not to say there aren't very collectivist cultures here, right? Uh, Because we're so multicultural. But I I will tell you, I hear from people in Toronto that it's one of the hardest places to date. Uh, Totally is. You know, we're, we're polite people, but we're not super friendly people. That's my view as of Torontonians. Now I'm born and raised here, but I'm, I'm Chinese Jamaican. And so raised with like these Chinese and Jamaican values, uh, Mm. especially Caribbean values around talking to people and acknowledging everyone. And it would be very rude to just get on a phone call and start talking. You have to say, you know, good afternoon. How are you? And if you walk by someone on the street, you need to say good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, Toronto's not like that. And so there's a little bit of, you know what, I think I used the word cold, and maybe I should take that back. We're a little bit shy, we're a little bit reserved. And I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the challenges in dating. That might be a Canadian thing overall, though. I've noticed that that certain Commonwealth countries tend to be a little bit more reserved. Yeah, I think that's what Americans are notorious for. Yeah, (laughs) I suppose. I mean, provinces, they're friendly. (laughs) I will, I will die on this hill, though, like when it comes to New Yorkers, New Yorkers are not polite, but they are certainly friendly, which is the opposite of what you just said about Toronto. I like, always find Americans yeah. more friendly. And and I, I don't even, I'm not even using those words with value judgments. Just they, they're more likely to say hello or ask you something or even in a much more straightforward way, ask you out. Mm-hmm. I, I think oh, Toronto really? Means, yeah, we're a little bit, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone. And obviously there's a great degree of variation among the uh-huh. 6 million people in the greater Toronto area. But I, right. I think there is a, you know, a fear of rejection that perhaps we need to work on. And that goes across genders. You know, when we put the onus of responsibility on men, it becomes super problematic for, you know, women also not learn in hetero context, at least not learning how to face rejection, which is a life skill. It is a life skill. It's actually one of the things that I keep trying to explain to people, um, especially, you know, parents, like you have to teach your, your child rejection. It's okay for them to be sad. I explained this to my dad. He was taking care of my son and my son, I don't know, something happened. He started crying. And my dad said, my dad has never raised boys. He has two girls and all of his best friends also had daughters. So his interaction with young boys is between myself and my sister. Cause we had, you know, I had one son, my sister had two. And I remember having to explain to him quite early on, you know, when Yanni cries, just let him cry. Don't say stuff like, Oh, come on, boys don't cry. Like I need, I need my son to learn that emotion so that he can work through it because this way he'll have the tools when he's older to cope. Absolutely. Yeah. And when we think about dating relationship, sex, probably the most important skill is that emotional literacy. Yes. You know, we can learn techniques, we can try positions, we can give you communication tools, but to have the capacity to say, I feel sad, I feel scared, I feel insecure, I feel jealous, Mm -hmm. I feel nervous, I feel uncertain, uh, I feel hopeless, like all of those emotion words Mm -hmm. are so important. And I mean, I wasn't raised like that. I wasn't raised to express my, my feelings. Uh, Certainly, you know, people know how to express mad, sad, glad, But we have so many other feelings that uh, are either separate from those feelings or underlie some of those feelings. Sometimes I feel angry, but really my anger is rooted in loneliness. Or sometimes I might feel frustrated, but really my frustration is rooted in insecurity. So if we could, yeah, equip young people 
with with those with the capacity to use those words, I think relationships would be really revolutionized. Anytime I think about, it's so interesting because you're from Toronto. Anything, anytime I think about, you know, people need to learn how to cope, especially the male sex needs to learn, it needs to become more emotionally literate on different emotions. I always think back to that, I'm going to call it domestic terrorism attack that happened in Toronto, where a man like just drove on top of women I think on Bloor Street. Do you remember this a few years ago? Uh, yeah. So there were a couple. He blamed of, women. Yes. There were a couple of, I think we're thinking about an incel. Yes. Uh, he was an incel. These, these folks who, yeah, who consider, and I can't remember if that one was on the Danforth in Greektown, or there was also another one up at Young and Shepherd. And you're right. Like the, this, first of all, it has to do with entitlement, right? This entitlement to sex. Why won't anyone give me sex? But as you said, it really also is connected to a lack of capacity to talk about your needs. Uh, And that's not just with women, right? But to be able to talk to your friends, to be able to talk to your parents, to talk to any source of support about a range of emotional experiences is so important. And I think we're we're all working on it, but certainly uh, folks who are raised, you know, as male are oftentimes more stymied, more hindered, more rigidly told no you don't do that right boys don't cry um be a man like man up and and this is language we hear all the time across all age groups and one thing you know i'm really hopeful i'm super optimistic uh, because i do see that young people are communicating with a much broader range of oh my gosh totally totally yeah, such a like, different generation it's insane mm-hmm. i um i coach uh greek theater for teenagers like it's greek competitive theater and um i have teenagers between the ages 12 and 18 in the program and i see the way they talk in 2020 uh, in, in, in fact my the last public event i ever went to was their competition on march 7th just a few days before lockdown. Right. And we got second place anyway. So it's always, I love talking to them. I love listening to them because they really approach problems in a very different way. And, And I don't know if it's because of parents or it's because the media has also opened up some of the, some of the language and some of the inclusivity and some of the acknowledgement of, you know, emotions are not binary. It's not happy and sad. There is, this massive range of emotion and you know it does show up in dating and it does show up in sex and to kind of go on to your point now about entitlement how many times have I seen I don't know about you but when I was younger if I said I'm not interested in you I feel like sometimes men would think oh if I just persist a little more because that's what movies teach us if I persist a little more if I if I wait outside her door for 30 days she will fall in love with me. And, and that's not the case. If a woman says no, it does not mean maybe. Right. Yeah. And that, that pressure, as you said, is perpetuated by rom-coms. It's perpetuated by generals. It's this notion that if you work harder, they'll notice you. And that's how you end up with people, first of all, feeling under pressure, but also consent violations, right? So it, it, it happens in terms of dating. So I might say, no, I'm not interested. And then there's this continued pursuit because that's our notion of Western romance, which mm-hmm. is super problematic. But it also occurs when it comes to sex, that if I say no, well, what if you try again, or you keep pushing or, you know, and that's how we end up with, with people being assaulted. And so, as you said, young people are having far more in-depth and nuanced conversations about these topics. So I think we're setting ourselves up for a very bright future when it comes to dating, relating, and sex. 
I hope so. So Dr. Jess, where you said you, your, your parents are of Chinese and Jamaican descent. That's my mom's side. My mom's Chinese Jamaican and my dad's Irish and I'm Canadian. Oh my goodness. I'm Canadian born. Yeah. Yeah. uh, This is the longest I've ever spent in Canada in my adult life now during, uh, during this non-travel period, but I'm going to go back down to Jamaica for the, for the winter because I don't think I can do a if I don't, if I have the choice, I'm not going to do a Canadian winter. Does your mother live there? Nope. Do you have family here. there? I have tons of family there. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's going to be a lot of fun then. Tell me a little bit more about what you do and how you got there. <laughs> sure. So my work now entails working with groups, usually just for an evening or a weekend, uh, groups of couples to improve their relationships. And I primarily work with entrepreneurs mm. and CEOs because two of my clients have chapters around the world and, you know, the members are all entrepreneurs or CEOs. And yeah, we, we do what, you know, in science, we call a brief, brief intervention, but it's just a workshop to improve communication, uh, you know, spark new conversations, deepen understanding and uh, get them talking about more intimate topics. And that leads into conversations around sex. And so that's what I primarily do. I also host a podcast, the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. And we have new episodes every week ranging uh, on, on such a broad range of topics, whether it's, you know, anal sex or emotional literacy or dealing with a rejection or, you know, oral sex techniques. So it's quite broad. We have some really cool guests. Actually, I'd love to talk to you because we haven't had a matchmaker in a while. And it sounds like you have some very keen insights. So I also have the podcast and I, I do a little media work, right? So I, I do television and radio and and I have a new book called The Ultimate Guide to Seduction and Foreplay, available where all books are sold. And it's really not just about, about seduction and foreplay. It really is about understanding your own sexual values, which I think is so essential for anybody who is either thinking of getting into a relationship or is in a relationship. I, I wish I could get people before they got into the relationship, uh, right. so many of your listeners. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. And I I got into this field totally by accident. Obviously, I'm not a Chinese Jamaican Irish girl who grew up wanting to be a sexologist. (laughs) I was uh, I was a high school teacher in downtown Toronto. And I saw the gaps in a system in the system, we had students coming to us every day with issues related to sex and relationships, whether it was unhealthy relationships or abusive partners, or STIs or, you know, unplanned pregnancy. And so I went back to school to study in that area to support teachers. And so that's my background, but my work is a little bit different. It's more, as I said, it's all corporate to some degree. Uh, mm-hmm. And we talk, you know, if it's, if I'm in a corporate environment, obviously we only talk about relationships, not sex, but in these separate workshops for entrepreneurs and their partners, then we actually get to delve into the sex stuff. I love that. Let's talk a little more about your book. Now, is this the book where you introduce the seven statues? That's right. Yes. Okay. Seven statutes of seduction. And so um, this book, I should say, is co-written by my co-writer, Marla Renee Stewart. And uh, she is the one who comes up with, helped me to come up with the seven statutes of seduction, as well as your seduction learning styles. That's funny. On the opposite end here, where I do uh, as matchmaking and dating, we, we have our five pillars of compatibility. Ooh. And one of those pillars is physical compatibility. Now, what I usually say, and it, it's okay if you disagree, but uh, what I usually say is 80% of your physical compatibility is going to be met on the first date. Like, you know, are you attracted to them? Do you feel uh, a sort of chemistry, that, that elusive part of it? That's the physical. And that remaining 20%, you're either going to learn it when you have sex, when you hook up, let's say, 
Um, but it comes with a, depending on when you fulfill that remaining 20%, that is when you'll also be able to understand your emotional compatibility. So much of that is tied together. So what I've noticed is if someone has sex quickly, let's say before date three, you might not be emotionally compatible, but because you've had sex, it's going to take about seven months now to figure out if you're emotionally compatible because the blinders are on. But if you wait just a little more to have sex, let's say you wait a a few weeks, that emotional compatibility, you might understand it way before you have sex because you know, you know, you have the time to learn their emotional range. This has been my, you know, professional observation. Tell me a little bit more about your seven statues though. Where do they fall into that, into compatibility? Uh, Yeah. So I see compatibility as something that to some degree organically, you know, you find with a partner, but I, I see it primarily as something that you cultivate. So I see, you know, that you're not, you're not looking necessarily for the one, but there are many people with whom you can build a really happy and fulfilling life. And so our seven statutes of seduction, we begin with anticipation because, and it's interesting that you talk about perhaps waiting to have sex, because that's something we talk about in relationships as well, that, you know, foreplay cannot begin in the bedroom and it can in fact be more exciting and more fulfilling if you start earlier. So we, we, our first statue is statute is around anticipation, not being the precursor to pleasure, but anticipation being pleasure in and of itself. And then our other statutes are around curiosity and piquing the curiosity of your lover and knowing that you don't know everything. Even if you've been together 10, 20, 30 years, you always want to remain curious. Uh, we move on to seduction as less being more really about slowing down and being seductive in all of your interactions and seduction is a is a word that has been you know very much bastardized by the pickup artist community and so when we talk about (laughs) seduction we're talking about maximizing pleasure for all parties involved it's not about manipulation it's not about getting what you want it's about mutual desire and pleasure. Uh, Our next statute of seduction refers to being present and mindful. And you must run into this all the time with daters. Oftentimes, I find that daters are so busy assessing the situation, uh, sizing up their partner, their potential partner, looking and, you know, seeing, are we a good fit, that they're, they're no longer present. They're really an outside spectator looking in on the date. And that detracts from so much potential with regard to connection. So we spend a lot of time in the book looking at, you know, how to be more present and mindful. Uh, And then our last few statutes have to do with not taking everything personally and learning to embrace rejection. Uh, And then finally having an open mind. And that means in many, in many cases, defying or rejecting, or at least challenging gender stereotypes, challenging expectations around what a relationship should or shouldn't be. And having an open mind doesn't mean that you have to do everything when it comes to sex, but really just being willing to learn, to consider alternative perspectives, to talk about a range of experiences, to push beyond your comfort zone. And if, if you can embody those seven statutes of seduction uh, and really, uh, as I said, push beyond your comfort zone, there's so much you can do uh, in relationships and in the bedroom. I love that. As you were speaking, I was just like thinking about some, even the people I've set up, you know, recently I set up someone and his feedback to me was 
after the first date, it was a great first date. We talked about a variety of topics. We were out for two hours, you know, whatever. Um, but I don't see myself growing old with her. And I was like, wait, that's not the purpose of a first date. Like the purpose of first dates to go on a second date. (laughs) That's it. That's all it is. I don't need you to tell me if you think that you're going to grow old with them. I don't need to know if you think they're going to be a good stepmother or stepfather or whatever. Um, I just need you to go on a second date. And if you enjoyed yourself and if you, and I think you're touching us with the first statue. I think if you felt, I don't know if you need to feel this, but just a little bit of sexual tension. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, again, I think if, Okay, in the absence of education that thoroughly explores the data and experience and range of ways relationships grow and last and blossom and become fulfilling. So we don't have that. That's the truth. Nobody's learning about that in school. In absence of that, we know that people are turning to popular culture as their models of relationships. Mm. So they're looking at rom-coms. They're watching reality shows. They're turning to celebrities who have higher, you know, relationship dissolution rates than the general population. So because we don't have the education, because this isn't a part of our, you know, regular school programming, we're turning to these rom-coms. And in rom-coms, it has to be this, you know, this spark, this mind-blowing, tear your clothes off, can't keep my hands off of you. Orgasm at the same time. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Like all all of these, (laughs) these dating, relational, and sexual myths really wreak havoc on our own sense of what we want. We don't even know what we want because we've been told what we want, when really that's just about selling tickets to a movie. And so in the absence of that, we're expecting something super unrealistic. And so, uh, you know, I see people who don't experience even sexual attraction right away, but it is something you can cultivate over time. And anybody who's in a, been in a 5, 10, 15, 25, 30, 40 year relationship, and I have clients who have been together 30 years and still have the hottest sex, they will tell you that that desire, that attraction is something you cultivate. It's something you create because after five years of living together or after your first kid, you don't find yourself spontaneously in the mood for sex the way you do when you're curious, when you're, you know, experience that early, you're experiencing that early chemistry. So there's nothing wrong with not having the sparks fly right away. This is my approach. And I know not everybody agrees. You can cultivate those sparks over time. I mean, of course, if there's something that is really off-putting about someone, I'm not saying that you can make it work with every single person, but there are many people with whom you can have fulfilling connection, a lovely lifelong, lifelong relationship Mm -hmm. and pleasurable sex. Like when pleasure becomes the measure of sex, it's not about just what they look like. Cause by the way, the way you look when you're dating in your twenties or thirties is not going to be the way you look when you're in your sixties and you're probably going to want to still enjoy sexual connection. So don't even also just because someone is good looking does not necessarily mean that they are going to be pleasurable for you in bed. Absolutely. I always yeah. try to explain this. It's, and I find always a brick wall when I try to say like, yes, this person is, you know, is very good looking. You're right. You know, that's why they're on TV, but you don't know their sexual behavior. You don't know what pleasures them. You don't know their kinks. You don't even know their sexual appetite. I've worked with a few celebrities and, you know, I've heard, I I know one of them, it's it's asexual, but you would never know based on their public persona. Absolutely. And when we go through those statutes of being seductive or being sexual, none of it has to do with the way you look. 
Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, there's an, obviously an overemphasis on the way people look. And there, there's many reasons for that. Sure, we're aesthetic creatures. Sure, we experience physical or visual attraction. Uh, however, there are so many different ways to develop that attraction to, mm-hmm. as you said, create pleasure. And none of it has to do with a physical attribute. Uh, that's not to say that you can't be visually turned on by totally. specific things. But yeah, it's really over. It's overstated. And it's a shame because, you know, I live by the 99 rule. What will I care about when I'm 99 years old? Will I care about whether, you know, my partner is a certain height or will (laughs) I care about the the life that we built together? Right. I hear people saying like, well, I will only date a certain height or I will only date. with. Oh, yeah. I hear that all the time. Characteristic. And, and, you know, I, I talk often about race as a mixed race person how oftentimes these so-called preferences are really rooted in Eurocentric beauty norms, really rooted in assumptions that are, you know, propped up by racial biases. And so I just think really when I'm 99 years old, am I going to care about a specific skin tone, a specific height, a specific shape, or is it going to be the connection? Uh, and, And that doesn't mean asexual. That could be still be sexual pleasure that I've experienced with the person sitting next to me. And so mm. when we only focus on the way we look, uh, first of all, it's boring. Uh, it's exhausting. And I always, I always wonder when people are so focused on looks, is it a social status thing? Have you been told that you will feel more validated? You will feel more powerful. You will feel more masculine or feminine or successful if you have somebody who looks a certain way on your arm. And what are you making up for? Uh, You know, do you feel that you're lacking in another area why this becomes so important to you? Now, I'm not saying that physical attraction is irrelevant. I just, I'm just saying it's really, I think it's 80%. (laughs) it's 80% that's what I keep saying it's 80% everyone's physical and I don't know if you agree with that number but everyone's you know I've set up thousands of first dates we're we're hitting 4,000 dates pretty soon first dates everyone has really different physical attraction ranges or we call in our office a barometer of attraction like what what range can we work within when we're matching someone it's just interesting to see like I sometimes I'll meet people And they'll say to me like, Marie, I don't want to start this program yet until I lose 10 pounds. And I'll say to them, like the person that you want to meet, they're going to like you now. And they're also going to like you 10 pounds from now. 10 pounds is, is not, you're not going to look that different. No one's going to notice. If you told me, Maria, I want to lose a hundred pounds. Then I'd be like, wow, definitely call me after you're done doing that. You know, if you're, you know, some people might do weight loss surgery or, you know, hire a trainer and maybe in, in 10 months or a year, or, you know, whenever they lose the weight, they'll do that. But that's like a whole lifestyle change. But for 10 pounds, 20 pounds, you're still the same person. And so what the person that you want to date, they just want to see that you are actively trying to stay healthy. I think that people have ranges when it comes to physicality. And, you know, it's what you said, rom-coms have definitely poisoned the well. Absolutely. Yeah. And also just, you know, singular representations of beauty. I find that, you know, years ago, I, I changed who I followed online so that I would follow more diverse body types and see them in these like beautiful poses and see them in powerful positions and see them living their best life, you know, folks of all different body types. And so there's somebody who coined the term, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know who the person is, your digital diet, changing your digital diet. And I, I've already found that like I find so many different types of people attractive. So even to have a range. Okay, I get it. But I would challenge people to think like, why? Why is that specific thing important to you? Because I, I can say I don't even have a type. 
I, you know, there's not a specific thing that attracts me to people. I mean, I know for one thing, for example, I'm very attracted to voices, right? I had people's voices really can turn me on or turn me off. Totally. I totally know what that is. (laughs) I I, I would definitely put it below 80% or I would challenge people to go below that 80% because I just think even with dating apps, right? All you're doing is looking at a picture on some of these apps, and I mean, come on, we don't even look the same as we do in our photos these days. So that makes it even more irrelevant. But I would challenge people to, you know, ask yourself why you're attracted to one specific thing, uh, as opposed to just accepting it as, oh, it's natural, because it's not innate. There are environmental, there are sociocultural, there are factors related to race, uh, to, to class, to all of these different elements that affect who we believe is attractive to our mm-hmm. to us we think oh no it's just you know I'm just naturally more attracted to someone who's I don't know taller or blonder or, or more tan up or, or paler or any of these things and we're not just born that way right there are environmental right. and sociocultural factors you know I always say chemistry is elusive because it's hard for me to pinpoint but sometimes people say you know I felt a lot of chemistry I felt a connection I- I'm gonna guess that nine out of ten times that connection is the familiarity that you mm-hmm. see with the person across the table from you. That's, that's um, a great point. The more like them, the more like me they are, the more attractive I find them. And we have data to that yeah, effect. Right. right. When a voice becomes familiar, we want to hear more of their songs. When a face becomes familiar, we rate it as more attractive. And so again, this has to do with kind of diversifying our exposure. So you right. know, all of your friends look a certain way, or if all of the people you're around look a certain way, you're going to be more responsive to them. So maybe we need to... These are excellent points. So to go back to sex. So we received a lot of questions for you and some of them revolved around a few topics. So for instance, the first that we kept getting a lot of is how to get your partner to go down on you. So I did a little survey on uh, Instagram um, a few weeks ago and I had a woman wanted me to ask, we always, um, if you ever want us to, if if a listener ever wants to do a poll, sometimes they'll send me, Hey, can you poll your followers this? And then I'll put up a poll. So one woman asked how many women can orgasm through oral sex only. And I'll tell you, it was about 50, 50. Yes. And no. And then I kept getting questions of like, well, okay, that's great. I I believe I can orgasm through oral sex or I can do it with some additional help, but how do I get my partner to go down on me? And this is where I was stuck because I don't, you know, so much of the language that I produce is like, you know, here's what to say on a first, second, third date, here's what to get you into a relationship. And while I constantly do give what we call peach pep talks on Instagram, uh, you know, go get your orgasm. You're worthy of an orgasm. How do you tell a man I mean, I don't know. I think it's, this is a conversation more than anything, but I guess like, I feel like if you have to ask sometimes I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. So uh, you've said a lot there and a lot of interesting stuff. So we do have, you know, data suggesting that women, so people with vaginas are more likely to have orgasms when they have oral sex or manual sex or sex with a toy versus intercourse. So only about one quarter of vaginas will consistently have an orgasm from penetration alone. And that has to do with, uh, you know, the clitoris being accessible either externally on at the top of the lips, you have the head, but also the internal vestibular bulbs of the clitoris and the cruise or the legs of the clitoris, you can rub them through the labia. They're not inside the vagina. So the vagina isn't necessarily the most reliable path to orgasm, whereas the kissing and the sucking and the grinding that can occur during oral uh, may be more likely to produce orgasm. So this is reflected in data around sexual orientation 
orientation. Women who have sex with women are more likely to have consistent orgasms than women who have sex with men. Women wow. who have sex with themselves are more likely to have orgasms. So people will often come to me and say, I can orgasm when I'm masturbating, but not with a partner. And there are many reasons why this may happen. But oftentimes it's as simple as, well, what are you physically doing by yourself? Do more of that with a partner, right? There's nothing that stops you from reaching down and using your hands or bringing a toy or fantasizing. Now, of course, there are people who don't orgasm with a partner because of the performance pressure. And that that's a different conversation. But to bring it back to the question of, you know, how to get your partner to go down on you, uh, I think we have to take it back to our learning about sex. So I mentioned in the absence of education, we turn to popular culture. Well, in the absence of comprehensive sexual health education that shows real depictions of pleasure and the wide range of ways we can engage in that type of sexual pleasure, we know that people turn to porn. So porn becomes our default sex educator. And that becomes problematic because not because porn is bad, but because porn may be entertaining, it may be titillating, it may get you off, but it is not produced with education in mind. And so many things are missing from porn, like the foreplay, conversations, communication, cultivating consent, asking, do you like it this way? Do you like it that way? And are, are you into this? Why aren't you into this? You know, what are your sexual values? What messages did you receive about your body? So in porn, although oral sex is fairly ubiquitous, there tends to be a focus on the male gaze, right? Which is women performing oral on men as opposed to the other way around. Now, of course, there are exceptions and there are a broad range of options when it comes to porn. And I'll just shout out and encourage people to pay for their porn because when you pay for your porn, it's more likely that the actors are be, being treated fairly, compensated fairly, and um, you know that it's a, what we call ethical porn. So that aside, if you want your partner to go down on you, uh, you know, obviously the short answer is ask, but when you're introducing something new or when you're asking for something you want, or when you feel there is even a deficit in your relationship, I often suggest a three-prong approach to bringing it up with your partner. Start with the positive, make an inquiry, and then make your request. Because most of us don't do that. We complain, we say things that are passive aggressive. We say like, well, you never go down on me. Or we compare and say, I go, I went down on you three times last month. What are you doing? We're afraid to ask because we don't feel deserving of pleasure. So that's the very first step is to know that you are absolutely deserving of pleasure at however you derive it. Some people it's through oral, some people it's through toys, some people it's from humping a pillow, whatever feels good for you. You're, you're absolutely entitled to, you know, obviously if there's another person involved, consent is the absolute bottom line. So if we start with the positive, I might say, oh, you know, it felt so good that time you went down on me. Or I might, maybe you've never ever gone down on me. So I say, oh, I I really liked the way, you know, that looked in that movie, or that really appeals to me, or, uh, you know, it would feel really good if we could try this. So start with the positive as opposed to to a complaint. Make an inquiry so that you're making space for your partner to express their feelings. So I might say, oh, you know, that that sounds so good to me. I, I'm a little bit nervous, but I'd love to try it. Then I make my inquiry, which is like, how do you feel about that? And then give them some space to reply and then make a specific request, which is, you know, I'd love to hop in the shower and give that a try. Right. And this applies to anything sexually. If somebody complains, oh, my partner never kisses me anymore. Okay. Partner doesn't kiss you enough. What do most of us do? We complain. We say like, oh, you never kiss me anymore. As opposed to, damn, it feels so good when you kiss me. I feel so connected to you. I want to have more sex, you know, all the benefits. Um, Does that feel good for you? And I would love if 
before you left for work, you'd take 20 seconds just to kind of give me a kiss, right? Again, a specific request as opposed to just listing the deficit. So that's one place to start with oral. Uh, and then I also think it's worth having a conversation about, you know, what's, what's your experience with oral? What messages did you receive about it? Uh, do you have any concerns around it? Are there things about it that make you uncomfortable? Sometimes your partner won't go down on you because they don't know how right? They, they don't know what it's supposed to look like. So I have a course for that. I have an online course on wow. pleasure for the clitoris that teaches your partner where I walk you through all the different approaches to oral and then a bunch of techniques and a model demonstrates on, on a mango or a grapefruit. I, can't, I think it's on a grapefruit. Um, so you can, you can check that out. Uh, my website for that is happiercouples.com, but it's the mind-blowing oral course. I have one for the penis too, but we're, we're talking, I think, about the vulva right now. Uh, so sometimes it's a lack of confidence. They don't know what they're doing sometimes uh, you're clamming up because, it, you know, if you're somebody with a vagina, we're raised with so many negative messages around our bodies. And so even when our partners sort of try and go down on us, we'll close up our legs or we get self-conscious or we stop right. breathing. And so our nervousness becomes contagious and then they feel uncomfortable and maybe they think they're not doing it right. That's the other thing. Once they are doing something, give them positive feedback, give them genuine positive feedback. Um, so there are all these different kind of approaches. And I, I think we also maybe feel a lot of pressure. Maybe your partner's afraid to go down on you because they don't think they can finish the job, so to speak. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be the main event. It might be that they go down on you for a minute or two, and then you do other things. Uh, also, if you're going down on them, you're, you're setting an example, you're modeling behavior, you might say, I love going down on you. And I'd, I'd love if you loved it too right? I, I'd, I'd love to feel maybe we do it at the same time. Maybe we lie next to each other, like in, a, in an upside down spooning position, you know, or I guess in a 69 on your side is the best way to describe it. So there are all these different ways. Unfortunately, most of us have sex without talking about it. And so the bottom line is we have to start having conversations about sex. And in our book, that to me is the biggest takeaway is that there are kind of hundreds of prompts and conversations and reflection pieces and exercises so that people can actually start these conversations. I can't solve your problems. No, no therapist is going to solve the problems. What folks in the industry can do is you hopefully give you some confidence and some tools so that you can continue the conversations at home. In tangent to this question, I, I seem to get a few questions that were saying like, well, the guy I'm dating has said he does not do that. He does not do oral sex. So my response personally to that would be like, all right, that's a deal breaker. Sure. Like, right. But for professionally, I would say to her is, well, you have to determine how important this is to you in your sex life. Absolutely. And when somebody says, I don't do something, uh, I, I mean, you obviously have a right to say no to anything. You have a right mm -hmm. to ask for anything. But I would hope that that wouldn't be the end of the conversation. So if my husband wants something and I don't want it, the relationship isn't going to thrive if I just say no, no way, no how, end of conversation. But if I were to say no, and he were to say yes, <laughs> and we were to explore those yeses and nos more deeply, so I could say no, you know, my, my concern is this, my fear is that um, I'm insecure about this, this makes me uncomfortable because, and we dig a little deeper and I say, you know, it's not that I'm against it, it's not that it grosses me out, it's just that I was raised with this belief that it's dirty and I'm having trouble overcoming that, let me work through it. If somebody's just saying no way, no how, end of discussion, that's when I think we run into compatibility issues. That's when it's like you said, it becomes a deal breaker. So if someone says, I don't do that, 
and they're open to having a conversation about why, if they're open to talking about how, you know, listen, you know, I I didn't eat tofu when I was little. I eat tofu now. I didn't do lots of things 10 years ago that I do today. Uh, You know, I tried pickleball for the first time today, yesterday. This is like this, this small, it's almost on a small tennis court with these paddles. But 10 years ago, I could have easily said, no, I don't play pickleball. I don't have an interest in playing pickleball, but yesterday I played it and now I want to keep playing it. Like it's, it's just so absurd to say, well, I've never done it. Therefore I never will. Right. Uh, Again, you don't have to do everything and maybe you'll find a partner who's perfectly happy with that, but you're right. You, you know, if somebody's closed to discussion, that's when it becomes a deal breaker. And that's when I think you run into these compatibility impasses. Another question that we received overwhelmingly you know, now that we're still living in COVID and it's going to keep going, how to make our partner feel desired during COVID slash long distance. Um, You know, I would add to this, and I think this is where some of the questions came from is like, you know, I've been on a few in-person dates with this person, but I'm not trying to kiss them or touch them until we get our respective COVID tests to clear. How can I make them still feel, you know, desired during this time? Well, the good news is that in in 2020 and beyond, we have technology. So if you're comfortable, you can play with, you know, more creative texting. So that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, send naked photos of yourself, but you might just kind of play with creative language and play with more seductive phrases, expressing what you want to do perhaps someday. And remember that just because you text something doesn't mean you have to follow through with it, right? You can play with different you know, desires or fantasies, and you can change your mind and you can revoke, uh, you know, you're not tied to any of this. Uh, you might even be sharing kind of images of your body. You absolutely don't have to. We always say that if, if you're in a newer relationship and you've mutually consented to exchanging sexy photos, you can always limit your personal exposure by, you know, sharing photos only of, you know, parts of your body, but not necessarily your face. Um, you can play with close-ups so they can't really figure out what it is. You can use voice notes. I mean, for auditory learners, I think that's a really big piece. Uh, one of the things we explore in the book centers around Marla's theory of learning style. So your learning style is also reflected in your sexual and seduction style. So if you're- Oh, more, tell me more about that. Yeah. So if you're more of a verbal learner or an auditory learner, then you might be more responsive to verbal and auditory seduction. You, if you are more of a kinesthetic learner, then you might find that you're more obviously responsive to physical touch. And if you're uh, more of a visual learner, then obviously you're looking for visual cues. And we kind of look at all the different ways to plant sex seeds and Mm. play with folks depending on their learning style. And so this tiles, you know, you you probably already know what your learning style is, but we probably haven't thought about it in the context of of sex or seduction. Right. So, uh, you know, there are so many different ways to, to experiment and play, and it doesn't have to be just one. So, you know, you've obviously heard of the love languages. Uh, the point with the love languages isn't that you give up on the other four. And so similarly with the learning styles, we want you to, you know, become adept at being a visual seducer, a kinesthetic seducer and a verbal seducer. And so when it comes to 
sexting or texting, you know, you've got audio notes, you could send even like videos of you just talking. Uh, Certainly you can play online. You know, you may not know that there are sex toys that integrate with apps. So Mm -hmm. um, the WeVibe, which is a Canadian brand, well, it was a Canadian brand, uh, all of their toys integrate with their WeConnect app. So I can, can, you can wear a toy and if you give me permission to control it, I can control it from afar. So there are many ways if you want to play sexually, you can do so from afar. I mean, I feel like I... I get this on such a insane level because I was in a long distance relationship with my husband for six years. Wow. Now, listen, when I met my husband, no part of me ever thought, oh, this is going to be a six year long distance relationship. I think both of us thought when we started dating, oh yeah, this will be a year. And then George will move down to New York. Like that was, that was our goal. But then, you know, my husband's career went a different direction. Very proud of him. But every year we had to add another year. Now we weren't that far. He was in Boston. I was in New York and I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I'm a small business owner. So I had the flexibility of going to Boston for, you know, one week a month. And then he'd come down the other two weekends. So we're still together like 10, 14 days a month, all those years. I mean, we got, we got engaged long distance. We got married long distance. We had a baby long distance, but I still saw him half the month, like half the month we were still together. However, one of the things that I noticed to like kind of keep it going was one of my fears was when I started dating my husband was don't, cause I've seen this many times. Don't try to get to know someone as if you're on holiday. Cause it's always going to be great. You know, I see sometimes people do long distance relationships where they'll spend two days with them the other week or once a month. Well, anyone can be awesome for two days, but you have to start doing the boring stuff together too. You know, you have to start learning their emotional range because you're also gonna learn the physical range. You know, if you only see someone two days a week, yeah, you're probably gonna have sex those two days. That doesn't, that's not an accurate depiction of the, what it's going to look like if you live together full time. Right. So I feel like if you are in a long distance relationship and you can, if you have this opportunity, like try to spend at least a week together every month to understand each other's, not only just emotional tendencies, but your physical appetite a little bit. Cause this leads into my next question. You know, what happens when your partner doesn't want to have sex and you do, or I'll give you actually a personal example. My husband is a morning person. I, I apologize in advance for any of his coworkers listening to this right now. I know a lot of them do. <laughs> My husband's a morning person. I'm a night person. And this is something that we have to constantly talk about because there's just no way like I'm waking up in the morning to have sex. <laughs> it's tough. So it takes a lot of talking to each other, but you know, what, what advice would you give? I think a lot of questions came up with like, I want to have sex, but my partner does not want to anymore. So here's what we know. We know that sexual desire doesn't necessarily occur spontaneously. And so if you're not in the mood for sex, of course, you have the right to say no, but you might also want to be open to saying, I'm not in the mood. Let's see what I can do. Let's see what you can do to put me in the mood because couples tend to stop having sex because one is interested, the other isn't. And the one who isn't thinks that it must occur spontaneously. They think, well, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I'm not attracted to them. Maybe I I don't like sex. And that's that. All those things may be true. Some people are not sexual. Some people don't desire sex. That's fine. Um, some people don't experience attraction. However, if you are, you know, wanting to have sex, but you just don't find that you ever, that the mood ever strikes you, then you have to do things to get yourself in the mood. So what that means is oftentimes you have to get physically aroused before the mental desire follows. And our model, again, from 
television, from movies, is sexual desire just occurs spontaneously. We tear one another's clothes off. We have a great time. When in fact, even in a loving relationship, even in a relationship where the sex is amazing, even in a relationship where you're super attracted to one another, life takes over sometimes. And so you have to push through. Not you have to, but if you want to have sex, even though you don't want to at this moment in time. a little intentional. Absolutely. You have to, you have to lie down, take some time, touch one another, fantasize, watch something, read something, use a toy, get physically aroused first, and then the desire follows. And so this is a, you know, a model of spontaneous versus responsive desire. And most people in long-term relationships end up experiencing more responsive desire. And so that I means- totally that understand this. Yeah. yeah. In the morning, sometimes you can take the time to put yourself in the mood and likewise at night. And yeah. as you said, it's an ongoing conversation. It's not this one-time thing where you talk about it and it's resolved forever. And so, I mean, it's very important to talk about sexual frequency, to talk about what puts you in the mood, what puts you out of the mood, what lifestyle factors, relational factors, health factors, diet, exercise, sleep, kids, work, stress, family, community involvement, social, like all of these things affect. So conditional. Totally. Yeah, we love to think like, oh, if my testosterone levels were higher, I'd be in the mood for sex. It's not as straightforward as that. It's not about your T levels if you're angry and resentful of your partner. Mm-hmm. It's not about your T levels when you're dealing with grief. It's not about your T levels when you're up all night breastfeeding. Like, yeah. it's not just about hormones. I had no problem with morning sex until I had kids. Now, because my husband is the one that wakes up in the morning for, forget my son, my daughter now to do her morning bottle because I'm responsible for her before 5am and he takes over. Like I need to sleep in, I sleep in. I need to sleep until seven 30 right. Right. <laughs> and I'm just not like, I, I need a minute to wake up now. Like it, it was never like this before I had kids. And I always try to t- tell this to my friends who are thinking about getting married. I always say, you know, you don't, if you are having such crazy problems in a relationship, not sexually just emotionally and you're you think a baby's going to help (laughs) you know all a baby does is it looks at the cracks of your relationship and just turns them into canyons it's why so many divorces happen within the first two years of having a child it's a magnifier i've said this before i think in a previous episode but it took my husband and i like i think like a year and a half to kind of snap out of like the parental role like hey we need to we, we got a, not, not a year and a half, excuse me, one year. It took us one year to snap out of the mom identity, dad identity. We need to, I need to be your hot wife. You, you need to be my sexy husband. Like we got to work on this. And, and, and in, in a sense of like, you know, it's okay that, you know, maybe we're aroused at different times, but we have to work on the responsiveness. I'm, I'm so happy to have now the vocabulary by interviewing you. Cause now I know what that means. Like we are taking an intentional step to the conditional environments that revolve around our sex life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sex won't happen on its own. People think if I find the right partner, if we're super compatible, if the sex is amazing, not necessarily, right? Like anything in life, you have to make it happen, right? Nothing just happens. Same thing with relationships. You know, we invest in the wedding and we don't invest in the relationship. Well, you would never do that in business. You never do that with your fitness. You can't decide to invest in your fitness once a year. You can't decide to eat well once a year. You can't decide to, you know, invest in your mental health, supporting your mental health once a year. But that's what we do with relationships. It's like, oh, Valentine's Day, an anniversary. You can't let your relationship slide. It takes ongoing investment and it's so worth it, right? I've, I've been with my husband for, oh, I think coming up on 19 years we've been living together and we met when we were really, really young. 
and moved in right away. And life is so good, but it's also because we work at the relationship. And I know some people don't like the word work. Um, so I don't mind the word work because I, I like my work and he likes his work. But I know that some people maybe don't get to do the work they love as a career. So maybe a better word is effort. Like it, it takes effort and investment. I love that you said that because I was just, I was just about to say, like, I love that you're not using the word work and you're using investment. I always cringe when people say all oh, relationships take work. I think work, the work can have a bit of a negative connotation mm-hmm. and it's not, I don't think my relationship takes any work. I think I invest into my relationship you know, emotionally, intellectually, financially, physically, spiritually, you know, those are the five pillars that we have for compatibility. And I, I try to, you know, I think those are, def- that's definitely a return on my investment by investing in these things too. And, and, and the return on my investment is my own emotional and mental well-being. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, being yeah, happy. I, I use the word work <laughs> all the time and I know people say it shouldn't be work. So I, I hear them that you know, there's a semantic element where like, I, I freaking love my work. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm really lucky to do what I love, but I know that work definitely, as you said, has these negative connotations. So I've been trying to be mindful of effort. Yeah. You used it right the first time. So somebody sent me this really personal question and I think it ties into what we're saying. And I think it's going to be our last question for today. So this is not her real name, her name. I'm going to call her Samantha. She's 40. She identifies as a woman. She's interested in men. She wrote, hi, Maria. I apologize in advance, Dr. Jess. I'm probably going to pronounce this word wrong. Um, Even though I'm Greek, you would think. Anyway, I have vaginismus. Vaginismus, yep. I have vaginismus and I've only had one real partner whom I've had intercourse with. I'm a sexual person, but I don't have a lot of penetrative sexual experience. My last ex was patient, but the truth is the lack of penetrative sex was a problem. Since that ended, I really started to work with dilators, physical therapy, and a sex therapist. What is your advice on how to bring up with a new partner that penetration might take a bit longer and how to teach him how to be patient without bruising the male ego? Thank you again. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story. And many people deal with vaginismus. So when we talk about vaginismus, we're talking about oftentimes uh, severe pain with penetration or spasms of the muscle. So it actually feels like you're hitting a brick wall. And so what is vaginismus like uh, on a physical? We believe that it's, you know, kind of tightening or spasms of the muscles that basically preclude penetration or make penetration very, very painful. Um, So people who are experienced, and I have an episode on vaginismus, actually. Um, On where, where can someone find that episode? uh, The Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, if you just go look for the vaginismus episode. And it's my friend and neighbor, who's a young woman, uh, dealing with it. And she tells her story. And I'm actually going to be talking about it again, because I've been receiving more and more questions. So there are many different approaches to vaginismus. It sounds as though you're already getting help from a PT, from a therapist. Um, You're using dilators. Uh, I'm hopefully on the therapy side, they're talking about, you know, any of the emotional elements, anything to do with, you know, managing trauma. So it sounds like this person's already on the right track. And I would say that in terms of presenting it to a partner, I wonder if you spend time getting to know your own pleasure. So we know that right now, penetration maybe is not pleasurable. Penetration may be precluded or it may be uncomfortable. And why would you want to do something that doesn't feel good? But can you find other paths to pleasure in your body? So when you touch yourself, when you masturbate, when you explore, 
what feels good in your body? Because I think that information uh, can be very relevant when you bring the conversation to the table to let a new or potential partner know, you know, I, I really enjoy sex and these are some of the things that I do enjoy. I hear something that doesn't feel good for me right now, or that I don't know where you are in this journey, but that requires a little bit more time, a little bit more sensitivity. Uh, so if you can talk about what you do love, so can you have most people, as I said, don't orgasm from penetration anyway. So what does bring you to orgasm? What does turn you on? What show them the techniques that feel good for you? Uh, and then also, you know, with that same model of, you know, positive inquiry request, ask them what they're into, right? You might be surprised to hear that not everybody likes the same thing, right? You know, some people don't like blow, some men don't like blowjobs. Some people don't even love intercourse. And we see that the more we broaden our definitions of sex, the better sex becomes. And so in our book, that's something we talk a lot about, that sex means different things to different people. One person's main event is another person's foreplay. One person's foreplay is somebody's ultimate fantasy. So I, I would start with what do you enjoy? Get to know your body. Focus on what does produce pleasure. Or, I, I say orgasm, but it doesn't have to be orgasm because you can have pleasure without orgasm and bring that to the table. I love that. That is so helpful. And I'm really happy to hear that there is an episode in your podcast that specifically talks about that. Again, I will leave a link to Dr. Jess's podcast, Sex with Dr. Jess, in the episode notes. And uh, as I said, follow Dr. Jess, uh, your Sex with Dr. Jess on Instagram, right? That's right. Sex with Dr. Jess. Sex with Dr. Jess on Instagram. Check out her book. Check out her podcast. Is there anything else that we can add? That's about it. If, if they do want to do some learning online, so I have some online courses like the Mind-Blowing Oral, uh, Last Longer in Bed for People Who Are Struggling with Premature Ejaculation, and Mindful Sex, and all of those are at happiercouples.com. That's amazing. I'll also leave that link in the episode notes too. Thank you again for joining uh, us on Ask a Matchmaker, Dr. Jess. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you love what you heard and you have not already, rate, review, and of course, subscribe. If you have a dating and relationship question, you can visit askamatchmaker.com to submit your 60-second audio question. You can also submit a written question and uh, we'll read it and we'll answer it in hopefully a future episode. You can also follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria for more dating and relationship tips. If you have that friend who is currently texting you about the drama in her life, tell her she does not need to have drama in her life when it comes to dating emotionally well partners do exist and one way to find them is to listen to matchmaker maria on ask a matchmaker podcast or to follow matchmaker maria on instagram that's it anyway you know what to do until then be lovable and more importantly be likable see you next week